Many of us don't pray more because we don't know what to pray about. We know how to ask God for our immediate physical needs, don't we? For health, for protection, for finances, for good grades, for good performance at the job interview, and the list goes on. But sometimes we lack the understanding that we need to pray not just about the physical things, but about the spiritual things. It's not hard to pray for material things. These are the things that we see in front of us all the time that we feel a need for, that we have a desire for. But what about the spiritual things? One author says it this way, imagine that an eight-year-old boy is playing with a toy truck and then he breaks it. And he is inconsolable and he cries out to his parents to fix it. And as he's crying, his father stops him and informs him. A distant relative that you've never met has recently died. And we just found out that they left you $100 million. I know, pretty funny, right? What is a child's reaction going to be? Well, for most eight-year-olds, it will be to only cry louder until their truck is fixed because they have no concept of what $100 million even means and no concept of their current state, and thus they can't be consoled. In the same way, Christians lack the spiritual capacity to realize all that we have in Jesus. And this is the reason why Paul prays throughout the New Testament again and again and again. Things like that God would give Christians the spiritual ability to grasp the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of Christ's salvation. Because so often we're like the eight-year-old who rests his happiness in his circumstances rather than recognizing what we actually have available to us in Christ. This morning we're continuing a four-week series that we're calling People Who Pray. And each week we're looking at a different prayer from the Bible, and we're doing that for a couple of different reasons. First, of course, the benefit is to see what these prayers say about who God is and who we are, and therefore be encouraged and nourished by what the content of those prayers are. But secondly, we're doing this series because we want to be instructed on how to pray even better and more consistent with the scriptures than we do right now. And this morning, we turn our attention to a prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And so I want to ask you to turn there with me. Here we see this prayer that's incredible and it's encouragement to those of you who are Christians. If you don't walk out of here this morning and have a level of encouragement, then I have either failed miserably to communicate clearly what is going on in this passage, or you have been looking at your phone the whole time instead of listening to what's going on. Because not only are we going to be encouraged by what's happening in this text, but we're going to be informed and how we can pray for spiritual things. 
not just the physical and material things in front of us. And so follow with me as I read Ephesians 1, starting at verse 15, it says this. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give, I, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul begins this prayer with a note of giving thanks. He gives thanks to God for two reasons. Number one, because he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus, he says. And number two, because of their love toward all of the saints or their love toward other Christians. These are things that only God can do. And so he thanks God for those things that he does. And we're not going to spend too much time here, but it's a very simple reminder for us to thank God for the things that he gives us, especially for saving faith, as Paul does, and for continuing faith, or faith that we grow in, as is evidenced in their love. Some of you might know the name Crawford Loritz. He's a longtime pastor and conference speaker. And I once heard his son tell this story about a time that he was traveling with his father on a trip. And as they were in the hotel room, his Father was praying and the son awoke at two or three o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night because he was startled awake. And he looked over to find his father kneeling beside his bedside in the middle of the night with tears streaming down his face in audible prayers of gratitude. As he said over and over again, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. And that always stuck with me. Partially out of conviction because I recognize that I don't often feel that intensity of gratitude for my salvation. And I don't want to be, and I'm sure you don't want to be, like nine out of the ten lepers who had a disease that caused their uncleanliness, their physical suffering, their social outcasts, and they met Jesus, and Jesus healed them, and they all went away, healed, except for one, only one of the ten who came back to give thanks for what the Savior had done. 
And Jesus says that his thanksgiving was a sign of his faith in Luke 17. When was the last time you thanked God for saving you? (laughs) For some of us, it's been far too long. When was the last time you thanked God for saving someone else? Someone you care about, a friend, a family member. When was the last time you thanked God for saving a bunch of these people who you are growing in Christian community with? The first part about our praying spiritual things is thanking God for spiritual things, (laughs) including the salvation of our souls. And so that's where Paul begins in this prayer. We would do well to be in our prayers likewise. The second thing he prays for is for spiritual knowledge. This is really the thrust or the guts of the prayer. He wants them to know something more than they know it today. He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants them to know him. This isn't a vague spiritual knowledge. It's not mystical in its nature. He is praying that they would have an increased knowledge of Christ. He wants the Ephesians to know Jesus more than they know him already. And that's his prayer. And it's a spiritual prayer. And he echoes that sentiment for himself. He does so, you might remember, the apostle par excellence, the one who has met Christ on the road to Damascus, who has planted churches in his name, who has seen conversion upon conversion, who's witnessed and performed miracles, the one who has suffered for this Lord Jesus and is moving toward his very death, this guy still wants to know Jesus more than he knows him at that moment. He says so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. You might remember it. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then he goes on to say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And you know, you've heard me say it and it's common sense again and again that there is a difference, isn't there? between knowing about someone and knowing someone. You can know about a lot of people and you can know a lot about them. I know a pretty good amount about the former prime minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, because he's a fascinating figure and I love history. But I don't know Winston Churchill. I grew up a fan of basketball and a basketball player. And so, like any kid in the 80s and 90s, I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I know about his upbringing, about his college career, about his NBA achievements. I even know, at least have a glimpse into how painful it was for so many Cleveland Cavaliers fans to experience defeat after defeat after defeat at the hands of the GOAT. but I don't know Michael Jordan. 
There's a difference between knowing about someone and really knowing someone. And you can know about Jesus by being part of a local church for many, many years and not really know him. And in fact, Jesus warns us of this very thing. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, On that day, the last day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know Christ? Or do you just know about him? What's the difference? How can you tell the difference between knowing about him and knowing him? Well, there's a number of ways, but one of them, central to the difference, is the nature of surrender. Have you surrendered to him in faith to forgive you and to lead you in this life? If you haven't, then you might know a lot about him. But you probably don't know him. But you can. You can really know him. You can go from a place of sort of a distant religious obligation that you might even like and makes you feel good to an intimate relationship that has affection and drive and hope and love in the midst of it. You can know him. And if you do know him, then I pray with Paul for you that you will know him even more than you know him today that your knowledge of him, which is a lifelong endeavor and pursuit, will increase month over month and year over year and decade over decade. And as you know him more, you will love him more. And as you love him more, you will grow in your faithfulness to him and your ongoing desire to please him and your great, great, great appreciation for what he has done for you. Paul prays for spiritual knowledge. The third thing he prays for is for spiritual vision. Look at it with me in verse 18. He prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. I love that expression. The eyes of your heart. The heart in the ancient world is considered to be the center place of a person's will. It's the seat of of their decision-making. It's more than just emotions. It's more than just lovey-dovey. You feel passionate about something or you don't or someone or you don't. The heart is the place of determination in a man or a woman. Paul prays that they will see clearly in the place of their determination and their will. That they will have a spiritual vision for the decisions that they make in their life. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses this idea of the heart with our temptation for great wealth when he says, for where your treasure is, or the things that you value the most, there your heart will be also. And you think about our need to see clearly 
in that place of decision-making and the struggle that we have so often. I think about the Coloradoan who moves to Texas and he builds a very large house with a beautiful large picture window which overlooks hundreds of acres of ranch land. And when asked about it, he says, the only problem is there's nothing to see. (laughs) And at the same time, A Texan moves to Colorado and builds a nice house with a very large picture window overlooking the Rockies. And when asked about it, he says, the only problem is is I can't see anything because the mountains are in the way. People have this tremendous ability to miss what is right in front of them. The light of the world had come and he was right in front of the Pharisees And the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day, he was right in front of the people who hungered for God and many of them didn't see it. And it highlights the need that we have for the Holy Spirit of God to do something spiritual, to give us spiritual vision in the seat of our decisions and our will. And when you need something spiritual, what do you do? You pray. You pray and ask the one who gives spiritual things to give it. And so the application couldn't be more obvious. Let me encourage you. Pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened as you make decisions in life. That you'd have a spiritual, divi- a spiritual uh, vision for those decisions. Pray it for me. I need it desperately. Pray it for your loved ones, for your family members who don't know Jesus. This is a prayer that asks God to help you to see clearly in the very center of your desire and your will. And he says there's other elements of this spiritual vision as well. The next one, part of spiritual vision is to understand the hope to which you are called, he says. This is the hope that when Christ returns in his glory and his glory is made manifest to all of the world, that we will join him in that glory. That's the hope. Colossians 3 says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Last Sunday, uh, I had a young woman in our church, 10 or 11 years old, come up and ask me a question. And she said, Pastor, I have a question for you. And I said, okay. She said, I want to know, other than being forgiven and saved, what are the benefits to following Jesus? That's a great question for a 10-year-old to ask. And so I thought about it for a moment. We sat down and I I said to her, well, there are a lot of benefits, but I want to give you just three. And I'll give you the abridged version. I said, the first benefit is that when you put your faith in Christ, God will be near you for the rest of your days. He will be near to you. You never have to fear being away from him or being distant or being alone. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, which means God will guide you and protect you and bless you and give you joy. The second benefit is that when you put your faith in Christ, you develop these really unique relationships with other followers of Jesus. And those relationships become for you the greatest relationships, the most joy-inducing relationships, the relationships that are incredibly beneficial to you, the best invigorating relationships for the rest of your days. 
I said, and number three, a third benefit is that we can have hope. That no matter how life goes, whether it's really hard or really good, you can have hope. Hope that God wins and all of those who are found in Jesus will ultimately receive their blessing and receive glory with him when he returns and he will indeed return. That is our great hope that will carry us through the difficulty of days. And at the mention of hope, the countenance of this inquisitive young woman moved from an intensity of inquisition to a very large smile. And she said, thank you. I never thought about all those benefits before. And then she got up and ran away. (laughs) (laughs) But from the youngest to the oldest, hope is something that we need. And we have it in Christ. But we don't often realize it. And so Paul prays and we pray that we would understand the hope to which we are called. The third part of spiritual vision, remember we're large categories and medium categories. We got thanksgiving, we got spiritual knowledge, spiritual vision. Spiritual vision now is divided into three different sort of subpoints for Paul. He prays that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. At first glance, you might be tempted to think that the riches of his glorious inheritance is talking about our inheritance that we receive upon entering into eternity. The benefits of being with God forever, the benefits of being without pain or sin or difficulty, and the benefits of being co-heirs with Christ. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit and have the down payment of that inheritance, we're told in the New Testament. And there are many passages that point us to that. It's an incredible benefit that we would do well not to forget. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. (laughs) Here, Paul isn't talking about our riches and inheritance. Instead, he is referencing the riches of God's inheritance. And that begs the question, well, what does God inherit that is so rich that he doesn't currently or fully possess? Namely, his people. God's inheritance, Jews and Gentiles alike, who put their faith in his son Jesus, who were purchased by his blood on the cross, they are the inheritance. You are the glorious inheritance of God. His people, his bride, his church. Now this should be immensely encouraging to you when you really start to unravel this a little bit because that the God of the universe who owns everything, he possesses the glorious mountain ranges and the beautiful seas. You and I are mere stewards of any material thing that we possess in this life because we die. But he never dies. 
which means he owns all things, anything that you think is of worth, beauty, or value, God already possesses. Even beyond our planet, he holds stars and suns and galaxies in his hand. And in the midst of all of that, anything that you could think of the highest worth and value, he calls you the riches of his glorious inheritance. You, with all of your warts and shortcomings. You, with all of your short-sightedness or self-centeredness. He calls you, even though you rebel against him, he values you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. And when you begin to see that, the depth of how much he values you, that changes your situation. It changes your outlook on your situation. It changes your outlook on suffering in this life. It changes your outlook on your finances. It changes your priorities in life that in Christ, you are God's most prized, richest, glorious inheritance because he loves you. That's amazing. So you see, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers for spiritual knowledge in Christ and of Christ, prayer for spiritual vision that you would see clearly and have a spiritual vision and decisions, that you would understand hope and not let that inform your life and your encouragement, that you would understand the value that God has placed on you. And lastly, you see prayers for spiritual power. Let me read it for you again in verse 19. He says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Spiritual power applied to you and spiritual power that you have access to in certain ways. I love the words that he uses to describe this power so you can understand it. The word power in the New Testament Greek is the word dunamis, which is the word from which we derive dynamite. The idea of working is the word energeia, which is where we get the word energy. <laughs> The word great, of course, indicates the ability to conquer and the word might has the sense of physical force behind it. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Everyone should want that kind of power. 
And I know I certainly do. But how is it applied to you and to me? Well, first it's applied as saving power. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Secondly, it's provided or applied as power for the Christian life, the ongoing power that you need because life is really hard. It's hard to follow God in this life with all of the temptations and with Satan at work in your midst. It's hard to have a spiritual vision when you're in the middle of the throes of difficulty. It's difficult when you have pain or emotional suffering. But this is the type of power that he's talking about. It includes power to resist sin, power that compels you to grow in holiness, power to exercise courage in the midst of difficulty, power to serve the Lord and do what he calls you to do, power to obey him and his commands. And so when you feel like you can't do it, and you all feel like that sometimes, and so do I, I just can't do it anymore. I can't do the right thing. I can't obey. I can't resist this sin that is before you, Christian. You need to know dynamite, (laughs) energy, conquering power that God himself has applied to you. And this power is rooted and informed by the same power that he applied to rise Jesus from the dead. And it's the power that's present at his exaltation into heaven. And so he concludes the prayer with this incredible eulogy, for lack of a better term. These words of praise of the Lord Jesus descripting or describing who he is And it's to point to the lordship of Christ and the incredible power that is used in applying this lordship and it's going to cause us to worship him. But it's not just to tell us more about Jesus. He tells us about this so that you would understand the power that is applied to you as well. And so he describes it this way. He says that he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's above all rulers and authorities and powers. His name is above every other name that has been and will come. All things are under his feet, he says, which points to the reality that not only was the entire universe created by him and for him, but that he still is in complete reign and dominion over it today. And it says that he is the head of the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And as one scholar says, the church fills Christ and who fills the universe in every single way. Puritan preacher John Owen describes 11 glories that this ascension and exaltation of Christ points to. His lordship and headship over the earth and over the church is described in these 11 glories. He writes, thus is Jesus glorious in his throne, which is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's glorious in his commission, which is all power in heaven and earth. He's glorious in his name, A name above every name, Lord of lords and King of kings. He's glorious in his scepter. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Glorious 
in his attendance. His chariots are 20,000, even thousands of angels, and among them he rideth on the heavens and sendeth out the voice of his strength, attended with 10,000 by 10,000 of his holy ones. He's glorious in his subjects. All creatures in heaven and in earth, nothing is left that is not put in subjection to him. He's glorious in his way of rule and the administration of his kingdom full of sweetness and efficacy and power and serenity and holiness and righteousness and grace in and toward his elect. But of terror, vengeance, and certain destruction toward the rebellious angels and men. He is glorious in the issues of his kingdom when every knee will bow before him and all shall stand before his judgment seat. And what a little portion of his glory we've pointed to. This is the beloved of the church, its head, its husband, and he is the one with whom we have communion. The power of God is displayed in the lordship of Christ. And it's this power that he gives to those who believe in him. And it's power that will see you through from this day all the way to the end. And so I hope you know it. (laughs) And so what do you pray for? There's a lot of practical things you can pray for and you should You should pray for your job interview. God cares about that. Should pray for your health. Should pray for your marriage. Should pray for your kids. But don't just pray for physical things because you can pray for spiritual things as well. You can thank God for your salvation and for the salvation of those who you know and for as many other good gifts You can thank God and pray that you would know Christ more than you know him today. And that you'd know him more next month than you know him this month. And year over year that you'd grow in your knowledge of him. You can pray that you would have spiritual vision. That you'd have spiritual vision in your decision making. That you would understand the hope of the gospel. That you would know the value of that God places on you. And you can pray that you would know the spiritual power that God applies to you through Christ. Friends, these are just some of the spiritual things that we can pray for. There are many more, but we have a great example of it here. But we struggle. I think of the man who went on a trip to India and was walking the streets of New Delhi with his father when a little boy approached them. He was skinny as a rail and naked, but for his tattered blue shorts. His legs were stiff and contorted like a wire hanger twisted upon itself. And because of his condition, the little boy could only waddle along on calloused knees. And he made his way toward the man and his father, and he cried out, One rupee, please, one rupee. And the man describes what happened when his father eventually responded to the boy's persistent begging. What do you want? 
my father asked. One rupee, sir, the boy replied, while motioning his hand to his mouth and bowing his head in deference. And the father laughed. How about I give you five rupees, he responded. And the boy's submissive countenance suddenly became defiant. He retracted his hand and he sneered at us because he thought my father was joking, having a laugh at his expense. After all, no one would willingly give five rupees. And the boy started shuffling away, muttering curses under his breath. My father reached into his pocket and hearing the coins jingle, the boy stopped and looked back over his shoulder. And my father was holding a five rupee coin. He approached the stunned boy and he placed the coin into his hand. The boy didn't move or say a word. He just stared at the coin. We passed him and proceeded to cross the street. And a moment later, the shouting resumed, except the boy this time was yelling, thank you, sir, bless you, thank you, thank you. And he raced after us again, but not for more money, but to touch my father's feet. This I imagine is how God sometimes sees us. Creatures in desperate need of his help, but rather than asking for what we truly need, rather than desiring what he is able and willing to give, we settle for lesser things. But friends, you need not ask for lesser things because God desires to give you the greatest things knowledge and vision and power to see what is real, what is important, what is life-changing, what is life-sustaining. And so pray. <laughs> pray for spiritual things. And with that, let's pray even right now. Father in heaven, we confess to you that we do not often pray for spiritual things, at least not as often as we should. We don't know how sometimes, or we feel lost or confused of what we can and should ask for. And today, God, we ask that you would help us in this, that you would enliven our prayer life all the more to see of the incredible value and worth and riches that you call us to pray for things of spiritual significance, things you've accomplished for us already, things that you desire to continue to give to us. And so I pray today, God, and we thank you and praise you for saving so many among us. Save more, we pray, men and women and boys and girls. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray that you would give us a greater knowledge of him that we would continue to grow in our desires and affections for him, not just about him. God, that we would have a vision for spiritual things and it would affect our decision-making, that our hope would carry us through the difficult days, 
God, that we would know and understand the value that you place upon us and that your love for us would be felt when the dark hours are upon us. God, we ask today that you would continue to give us spiritual power, power that is applied to us, the same power of the resurrection of your son. His lordship is amazing. His glory is unmatched. And we pray that not only as we see him more clearly and worship him more sincerely, that the power applied to him is also, as it is also applied to us would be something that we live in and rest in and understand. Not power as the world understands it, but power as you understand it. And so we ask for these things. Needing you, we pray in the name of your glorious son. Amen.